Welcome to this week's episode of The Versatile Writer, the podcast that aims to provide help and support for like-minded writers. This is Season 9, Episode 2, Character Arcs. There is a Facebook page dedicated to this podcast. The link is in the show notes, or you can search for it on Facebook. It's called The Versatile Writer Podcast Group. I'm recording this next to a window and there will be birds singing and flapping, plus there will be cars going past too. So if you hear all of that, just keep it in mind that this isn't one of those polished podcasts. This is very much a real and raw one. I quite like it like that. Character development is a topic I've talked about before on The Versatile Writer, but I don't think I've covered character arcs before, at least not like this. I wanted to create an episode on arcs, Because while most of us know what they are, that is how the character behaves and believes and what they do at the start, to how they've developed and transformed by the end of the story, until you truly spell it out for each character, aspects of arcs can go unnoticed. Ensuring their change is in line with the story development and having other characters' transformations noticed too could well be the best story. And that's why I decided to remind myself of the arcs of my main characters. Also to notice if there are any, or many, similarities between the characters I choose. You could think of a plot and the characters as different parts of the same machine. They're all working together, yet they're all working independently. Hey, who said writing a story was easy? I do know that my own choice of careers for a lot of characters are similar and a lot of traits are similar, so I probably do have quite an easy style to recognise, identify. As writers, we're often pulled into a particular direction of a character. For sake of argument, let's say you really like the idea of a specific career choice for them, maybe something in law enforcement, criminality, shopkeepers, school teachers, university professors or something not from this world. Maybe it's not their career that starts you off. Maybe it's a character trait. Maybe you enjoy working with those who find themselves the rescuer, or the victim, or the troublemaker, or the peacemaker, the apathetic, the energetic, the gambler, the lucky, the hard worker, or the person that's always letting others down. There are so many to work with, and from that, from that so many stories you can create. In most genres, you need two people's character traits to make the story work. In crime fiction, you need the criminal and the person upholding the law to make it work. In romance, you need one person to love and one one to be loved, and hopefully who will also return the love. In fantasy, you need the person performing the magic, for instance, and the character upon whom the magic is done. Therefore, you generally need two parts to make a whole And that's where I see character arcs working together. Most of you know that I usually, though not always, write romantic suspense stories. Romance is a genre that lends itself to being character-led, so character plays a huge role. Your characters do need to have something about them that keeps the reader reading. I do like a spirited leading character, whether they're male or female. In my stories, both the main male and female characters need to have personalities that vibe against each other. Where one lacks, the other brings. Where one is physically stronger, the other matches that with emotional strength. If the tables are turned, just like in real life, they switch to continually create and maintain the whole. 
At least that's how I see relationships and how my characters see relationships. Other writers may feel differently. But that's how characters work together. Within a story, characters often have an arc. That's the journey their personality takes from the start to the end of the story. Sometimes that could be that they begin as a nasty, unlikable person and end up the kind of person you want to spend time with. Alternatively, they may be really nice but end up not the least bit pleasant. Character arcs can also be shown to learn something along the way that embitters them, leading them to make different decisions they might not normally have made, or uplifts them instead. Arcs show the reader that the character has developed somehow during the journey, and they also show the reader, should they be looking, that the writer is developing too. To create an arc, first you must have a character. They ought to show the reader and the other characters with whom they engage that first they must be a believable person. And while you're enjoying the story, their development grows further. I tend to think that to make them believable, first you must believe they're real. You might already know that my process for creating characters usually begins with fitting the visuals to them. That is, I might use an actor's features to fit the character's look. The character's personality will be different from the actor, but their face may look similar, or at least some of their features might. As an aside, and to illustrate characterisation and appearance, I'm going to share two stories that happened to me years ago. Not long after I self-published my third novel and a couple of non-fiction books, so around mid to late 2000s, I was talking to another writer who had quite the backlist of traditionally published books. They were sharing their views on characterisation and how they believed everyone dealt with creating characters. Actually, no, they were saying how characters ought to be created. A gap was left for me to give my thoughts and me being typically excited over writing-related questions, conversations and pretty much anything to do with writing, I naively offered them. I said that from my own experience, I found it useful to imagine the look of an actor and use that as a base for my character's appearance. I was told quite firmly that I was doing this wrong. And they used the word cheating. They went on to say that if I chose an actor to be the character in my story, then that is not original. As you might imagine, it floored me. How could using my own imagination be cheating? Isn't that what creative writing was all about? Since then, I've been cautious as, as to what I share with others. Yet, at the same time, it's still my chosen method, method for creating characters. What they may not have known, and what I certainly didn't know back then, was that not everyone sees the same things in their minds. That is, all our imaginations work differently. Who's to say what's the right way and what's the wrong way? The end result, the reader, likely doesn't care how the author came about the character or if they bore a similar resemblance to whoever. And let's face it, everyone looks a bit like everyone else in reality anyway. My method of imagining the actor and using their appearance as a character will alter in my story as it's my perception of the actor and the amalgamation of several of their characters crafted further into a different person. I tend to use the look or part of the look in my mind. And that's not always about their face either. It could be their accent, the way they deliver their words, their hair, their walk, just about anything like that and write the actions and dialogue on the page, keeping the actor or actors firmly in my mind, but using words to describe that rather than the actor. This leaves the reader to make up their own minds on who or what this character looks like. 
You could see it as a metaphorical piece of clay that I could mould into the shape I want, starting with that actor. It's not the actor playing out in my novel, <laughs> if only. It's my perception of the actor becoming a character. That said, if any of my novels ended up on the big screen, would I try to move heaven and hell to get specific actors to play these roles? Without a doubt. Also, about 20 years ago, I was reading a romance book, the kind you get in the supermarket, and the author had spelled it out clearly that her romance story's love interest was a boat captain who looked exactly like Kevin Costner. The author actually wrote the actor's name. At the time, it was jarring, because then all I could think of was Kevin Costner doing the romantic things this character was doing. Mr Costner does not do it for me, so I was a little put off if I'm honest. It would have been hugely better to describe what he looked like rather than name the person. That way, the reader fills in the gaps to make the character into someone they like instead. Since that happened, I've given this scenario lots of thought. What is right and what is wrong? Or more to the point, is there a right way and a wrong way? I'm not sure any of it is an emphatic right or wrong because creative writing, the word creative plays a massive part. Sure, there are tons of characters who look a lot like this actor or that actor and there are heaps that don't. I don't know if either way of using this is right or wrong. Though I do know that however your creative process works for you, is right for you. I think I've recorded episodes of The Versatile Writer before that mentioned even or even focused on what the reader brings to the table. Although you can't hear that, I said that in inverted commas, what the reader brings to the table. Sure, writing is a solitary occupation, but without the reader, you've not got a complete circle. There are times when you write a story but leave out major aspects of imagery or even parts of action and dialogue for the reader to fill. This is because each reader will bring something quite different to the experience. One might be reading for escapism, another to not have to think, another who wants to work out a puzzle. If we as writers give the reader all the information, they don't have anything to do and for many readers, me included, that can make the whole reading experience a bit dull. But that's about the character's appearance. This episode is about their arc. Let's start at the beginning and study each of my five novels and the main characters within. As I said, I began publishing around 2006 and some of the novels are out of print now, though a few copies do still exist. So if you have one, it might be worth something now. Then again, it might not. Dicing with Danger was my first published novel. I'd written novels before, but I hadn't actually published them. Genevieve Dicing and Casey Pitt were my main protagonists. Casey was intended to be an action man type, and Genevieve was to be the aloof type. I know these are pretty well used character types, but they work. Casey was a police officer in Washington DC, attended a hostage situation with his partner Dan Chandler, and we, that's where we first meet Genevieve Dicing. She's terrified to Casey's reassuring calm. During her rescue, Dan is killed. And sometime later, this trauma makes Casey leave the force and the state. He gets a job in LA as a bodyguard, and inexplicably, his first job in that role is to guard the self-centred socialite called, yep, you guessed it, Genevieve Dicing. In a strange turn of events between the Daily News, Casey's new boss, and Genevieve's boyfriend, Casey is accused of kidnapping her. Through the tension, blame, anger, sense of loss and guilt of their first meeting, 
The two drive through Hollywood Hills, enduring arguments and silences until they realise they're starting to care for each other. They're trying to reach an old friend of Casey's who he believes will provide a temporary safe haven. While this tense pairing continues, both Casey and Genevieve see a different side to each other, as does the reader. In true romance story style, there is a blossoming love story, even if it is born from resentment, frustration and blame. That is the hole I mentioned earlier, where Genevieve was scared at first. Casey began as pretty calm and reassuring. Later, she's arrogant and entitled, while he was angry and resentful. If they hadn't attended her initial kidnapping, his partner Dan would not have died. Then towards the end, the two could not do without each other, caring for each other and, let's face it, falling for each other. I set up the end of Dicing with Danger just to show how its sequel would play out, and I'm about 20,000 words into that sequel. My next novel was Guardian Angel. Jane Murray was a writer, and Tim Angel was another cop, this time in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm sure by now you can see a trend in my men, although that isn't to suggest I won't use other career choices. You'll see evidence of that in a bit. As I said, Jane was an author, but her sales were diminishing, so her agent suggests she rides along with the police for a week to see, experience, the seedier side of life. Imagining it is one thing, but experiencing it would be better research and it would show better for her stories. The police agree and assign partners Tim Angel and Dale Faulkner. Tim and Dale were instant opposites in personality, Tim being the young cop whose attitudes and manners and treating women might be seen as quite old-fashioned, where his partner Dale was more extrovert and slept with anything that moved. Of the two, Dale was the typical hunky guy you'd likely see in a movie, where Tim was much more straight-laced and potentially less attractive. This was a deliberate move on my part, and of course, attraction is subjective. As a mini-whole, though, these two worked well together. They were both focused on the small details and the bigger picture, each taking a different perspective. Add Jane, and the whole thing was slightly distorted. Jane brings her own sass and purpose to the story, and manages to bring something else out in both Tim and Dale. Love and lust, respectively. Jane's not backward in coming forward and likes them both for completely different reasons. She loves how Tim treats her, but enjoys the flirty back and forth with Dale. And while Tim likes her from the get-go, but does nothing about it, Dale does not hold back. Consequently, Tim gets jealous with the relationship. Working with three main characters can be tricky. Who doesn't enjoy a love triangle? I work with them a lot. This story technique shows up again in Living and Loving in Texas too, with Garrett, Megan and Billy. Although, as with most stories using love triangles, there needs to be something else happening within the story aside from just the relationship. In Guardian Angel, it's the small matter of a serial killer on the loose. As the plot progresses, we see major character changes and huge character arcs where Jane has to become bait to trap the killer. Jane agrees to be the bait, albeit reluctantly. Dale is up for her doing it, but Tim refuses to let her, as though he has a say in her decision-making. Allowing her permission is a big deal within the story. It's as if he didn't get the feminist memo. Being old-fashioned with the way women are treated seemed all sweet and protective at first, but when Jace, Jane sees him behave like this, there ensues a big discussion. 
and also where Dale shows a very different side to his character too. As with many of my novels, I generally want to continue with the characters, so create a sequel, and this happened with Guardian Angel, and the two stories were twinned together into one book. The second story highlights Tim's background and why he has this old-fashioned attitude. He was raised by his grandparents, and after being abandoned by his father shortly after his mother's death, the second book begins where Tim received a phone call about the whereabouts of his father, who he believed was dead. Not only is he alive, but he also went on to have another family. Themes of abandonment are very big in that story. The sequel is mostly about Tim and him coming to terms with his relationship with his father. It's a hugely emotional story that got me sobbing while writing it in 2006 and again while editing it and during lockdown when I read it out as an audiobook on The Versatile Writer. My third novel, a young adult story, was Jenna's dad. As with all my stories, there are not just two main characters, two sub-characters and several minor ones. There are many levels of this. Jenna's dad was no different. My main character was a young girl called Felicity, nicknamed Fizz and her love interest was Mike. A brief character hierarchy was that Fizz and Jenna were best friends at school. Jenna's dad, Mike, was dating Fizz's mum. Essentially, Fizz and Mike were my main characters. Fizz has a massive crush on Mike and decides that, during his blended family holiday, she's going to give Mike her virginity. Yep, I know, it's a big topic and one I've been told has been handled well. Fizz's character journey starts with diary writing and finishing with her classroom boyfriend, Josh. He's just a boy, she decides at 15 she needs a man. Josh is just too immature for her. She's got bigger fish to fry with Mike. And now they're all going on holiday to America together. She's going to make sure it's a holiday to remember. However, Mike has no, no idea about this arrangement. He's trying to ensure his new family works well, but has a wayward daughter in Jenna who gets away with everything and anything, and a girlfriend, Fizz's mom, who's unsure if she wants to get seriously involved again. In the meantime, there's plenty of bullying, peer pressure and moody behaviour from Jenna as she tries to get Fizz to sleep with the surfer dudes on Malibu Beach. Fizz is pretty naive and reacting purely through her hormones since, at 15, she's got very little life experience to work with. Character development in this story is hard and fast Fizz has to learn quickly because it's not just about embarrassment that's going to hurt. The stakes get potentially much tougher. Fizz wants Mike as a boyfriend, not a father figure. Except he's actually only that. After Fizz gets Mike into a compromising situation, she discovers she has made a massive error and runs away. Finding herself on the beach at night contemplating a very bad idea, she's befriended by surfer dude Nick, one of the only people in the story, aside from Mike and her mum, that seem to want to protect Fizz. When she returns to Mike to apologise, Nick in tow, who enables everyone to see sense, Jenna shows up and reads the diary to them all. Well, you can imagine how that goes down. Nick, though, is really a peacemaker and a diplomat that they all need in such a tense moment. While his character arc is quite short, it's intense. Jenna's arc is on a downward spiral from this point. She's out of control and gets a massive wake-up call towards the end. Fizz goes from secretive teen to now inline teen, and her relationship with Mike is much more appropriate, with much clearer roles for them both. Fizz keeps in touch with Nick, who becomes a family friend, and forms a bigger role in book two, which is about 10,000 words in. My fourth novel was Living in Loving in Texas. It's a bittersweet family saga that takes place in a small fictional town 
Yes, you guessed it, in Texas. The main characters were Garrett Cobb and Megan Mayer, also Billy Cobb, Garrett's younger brother. Garrett was a 30-something construction worker, not a police officer this time, or a travel agent like Mike who spent most of his teens raising his younger brother due to his mother dying and his father being an alcoholic. His brother Billy was out of control and following in their father's drunken footsteps. There's a, quite an age gap between Billy and Garrett. If I remember rightly, it's about eight years or ten years. There's a lot of backstory to this novel and a reasonable chunk of flashbacking too. And this helps tell the story of where each of the characters are now and why they feel the way they do. It was a bittersweet story that mostly orbits around Garrett, his life, his family and his decisions. Garrett worked as much as he could to pay for a round-the-world vacation as he'd never travelled before and wanted to see the world. Megan thought spending time at work meant he'd lost interest in her, so found temporary comfort in a night with Billy. They break up and as Garrett looks to leave town for his trip, he holds an engagement ring in his pocket, ready to spring a romantic trip on Megan and win her back. However, just before he leaves for the airport, Billy announces Megan is pregnant. Fast forward almost a year and Garrett returns to a family in disarray. Billy is out drinking with his father. Megan has been kicked out of her mother's house and living in a tiny room at the back of the Cobb's house. And the baby is an afterthought in Billy's eyes. Garrett returns to having to fix everyone's problems and losing another parent in the meantime. From original caregiver to Billy to handing him over to the police at the end of the story, Garrett's arc is exhausting. I truly felt for what I put him through. There are two expressions that cover what I put him through, firefighting and plate spinning. Billy's arc touches on several traits throughout, like manipulation, denial, troublemaker, until finally he goes straight to drunken criminal. I intended to write a sequel where he is a different person after prison, or is he? Megan goes from misguided to sweet to likeable and eventually a lovely woman who has the best interests of her baby's life and that of Garrett at heart. The more recent dream state is a trickier one to describe because there's a heap of relationships within the story and as such a heap of arcs too. There are two stories going on at the same time and you may have seen dream state described as a book within a book and that might give you a clue. Let's start with one couple, Drew and Katie. Drew was a chef and diner owner, and Katie is his waitress. Drew begins as focused on work, yet fawning over Katie and trying to keep it a secret. Streetwise Cheryl, his head waitress, sees right through him. Cheryl treads that fine line between overstepping the mark to keep Drew on track, to ensuring the two actually do get together. I hope she's one of those characters who's filled to the brim with personality, the kind you want as your own best friend, and I really hope readers see that too. Katie is clueless at first, then irritating. I even had a beta reader tell me as much, only to become a much nicer person later. Although the jury might be out on that one, you tell me. In the real world, as it were, Becca is a school teacher in London, and her sister, Lila, the conduit about which this entire book is based, is a writer. Lila has a car crash with artist Ben, and the two end up spending the majority of the book in hospital. There is another character, well, a few actually, and who are more important to the plot, but one in particular, Margaret. Margaret darts out as a smiley nurse, full of life, but she has a massive secret. There is a spoiler here, and I won't tell you. I do realise I've just given you a heap of spoilers on all the other books, but on this particular one it's my newest, and I want you to have a look at it. 
The dream state characters arcs are all pretty different, which was a challenge since there were a lot, and I mean a lot, of dynamics on which to focus. To date, it was my biggest novel and one that took the most brain power. For what it's worth, each of my male characters turned into crushes for me, the writer. Yes, I'm well aware that I created them and yet I still fell for them. It probably makes me very odd. I hope so. So there you have it, character arcs and how they make the story what it is. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, which story or character meant the most to you and more importantly, why and which book. And I don't mean my own books, I mean any book you've read, even your own, but mine too. You can get in touch through all my social media platforms. The details are in the show notes. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Versatile Writer on the topic of character arcs.